Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Genesis 10. And uh, we're going to get through a certain part of Genesis 10 because we're going to have to camp out and explain a lot of things on particular verses. A lot of the times this chapter 10 is ignored, but as we have looked at Genesis, what you have to understand is chapters 1 through 11 set the whole foundation for the rest of the Bible. If you don't understand Genesis 1 through 11, you won't understand eschatology. You won't understand the kings of Israel and the land issues and where the Messiah, why he needs to come. So it's a foundational thing. And Right here, you're looking at the last foundational things, and they will all point to eschatology. That's why I'm going to talk a lot of eschatology through chapter 10. From this point on, it's trying to set the foundations of why the last days will happen. And one of the things I want you to understand as we look at this text is... I want you to really think Jewish. I've always taught from a Jewish perspective. I don't teach from a Gentile perspective because Gentile teachings don't understand the richness of what's going on in the text. So here's what I want you to keep in mind as you study the Bible from this point on, is you need to study the Bible in patterns. You need to study the Bible and understand the stories and the patterns behind what you're reading. Because in the Jewish mind, that's how they think. That's how the Bible is written. It's written in the framework of patterns. The patterns keep repeating themselves. The stories keep repeating themselves, but with other characters and different situations. And one of the things to notice when the patterns start occurring, the patterns will start in Genesis 1 through 11 and continue on through the rest of the Bible. And so what you see embryonically here in these 11 chapters is the beginning of the pattern. It's the prototype for the rest of the patterns that will come. Unfortunately, what Western Christianity does is we think too much like Greeks. We have too much Greek mindset when we approach the scriptures. And what that means is, like, we'll do a bullet point of the text and outline all the different facets according to bullet points. And again, that's part of our culture. It's called outlining. I do it. And it's very Greek to do that. The Hebrew mindset won't do that. The Hebrew mindset looks at the patterns, the story behind it. They look at typology, whereas Greeks don't do that. They just, number one, then subpoint A, subpoint B, subpoint C. And they won't take that and apply it and see how far reaching all those points are across the board to other biblical stories. Here's the problem with Greek thought Greeks will not see connections. They will see the text isolated by itself. And one of the hermeneutic principles I want you to understand is the scriptures interpret the scriptures. If you don't know what a word means, you have to go back to the original use of the word, especially in the Old Testament, particularly in chapters 1 through 11, and get the original word and the meaning from that and then apply it to that text you're reading. So I know that's a little bit of a hermeneutic lesson. But my goal is to have you think more Jewish when you approach the scriptures. And if you do, you will start seeing this pattern emerge like we're going to talk about today. When most people read this text and they read about Nimrod, they say, well, he's a mighty hunter before the Lord. What's the big deal? It's a huge deal. Nimrod is a prototype of the Antichrist. The Bible is setting the pattern of this is the first time it'll happen, and it'll happen again in the future, multiple times, Pharaoh of Egypt, evil Haman, 
and the list goes on throughout history, culminating in the final Nimrod, which will be the Antichrist. So if you want to know about the Antichrist, you have to know the embryonic beginnings of the prototype and what it looked like and what they did. And I'm going to talk to you guys about that. Then when we go into the Tower of Babel, we'll talk more about the one world government because that's what's happening there. And so it's all a prototype and a pattern. So this is why I entitled it, How the Past Interprets the Present. So if you want to understand the New Testament, if you want to understand eschatology, the study of the last days, you have to know the past. You have to know what the Bible said originally about it, and then you'll have a proper understanding. And again, that's just a hermeneutical lesson. But for yourself, I want you to think about this, because God will work the same way in your personal life, and I'll apply this to us in the application part. Here's what I want you to start thinking about in your life. When you assess your life, you have to look back at patterns. You have to see patterns in your life. You don't need to see it as a Greek thing, where you just go one event to another event to another event, and they're all disconnected. That's not how it works. Your life is a pattern. It patterns itself out. And what you'll see is reoccurring themes in your own life that keep popping up. And if you think in those terms, now you're thinking Jewish, and now you'll start to analyze your life better and understand what God is trying to show you even personally with your life. Most people are not aware of the patterns in their life. Have you ever noticed there's things in your life that keep popping up? Same kind of person keeps popping up. Same type of situation keeps popping up. Same circumstance keeps popping up, and you never can escape even if you move out of California. Right? It just follows you. And you know why it follows you? Because you're taking yourself with you, if that makes sense. I want you to think about that as you're studying this. That will be the application. We'll get more into that in just a bit. So with that being said, then let's start in Genesis chapter 10. We'll, look at, we'll start in verse 1. And again, I'm going to go through this pretty quickly until I get to the core of what I want to get to today. Verse 1. Now, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. These are the three sons. By the way, I mentioned this last time when I preached that the DNA record that we have is consistent with three DNA structures. And those three DNA structures obviously can be traced to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Isn't that funny? Isn't that interesting that the three are connected even in your DNA? In your DNA right now, you either have Japheth in you, you have Ham in you, or you have Shem, or you could have a combination of two or a combination of all three. But the boys are in you. They're in your DNA. And the funny thing is, after the Tower of Babel spread out, the DNA spread throughout the whole planet is pattern coming from these three boys, and it makes total sense. Understand this. This table of nations, and I gave you a handout for it, just so you can see it from a more of a graphic standpoint, this thing right here. What you're seeing right here from the Bible is unparalleled. There is nothing in archaeology, nothing in history. Even the Greeks do not have something like this. The Bible is the only thing that has a very accurate table of nations at the very core of the beginning. And by the way, all of this can be traced to what the Bible says. It's astonishingly accurate. The scope of this is worldwide. And again, this testifies on an apologetic level to the Bible being extremely accurate, not only from a scientific standpoint, but from an anthropological standpoint of how the people spread out after the Tower of Babel. So I give you that as a visual so you can see. I'm going to make a reference to it in just a bit, so hold on to that, okay? 
The sons of Japheth were Gomer, which refers to Germany, the area of Germany, Magog, okay, past southern Russia, Madai, the Medes, Javan, a part of Greece, Tubal, and Meshach, that's part of Russia, and Teras. These are all the Georgia, Russian, southern, you know, area. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, that's Germany, Ribhath, is Carpathia, and Togomar is Turkey. Now, interesting enough, I just wanted you to see this because these are the names that are used by Ezekiel in the Gog of Magog War. So we know from the ancient records of the Bible where these countries are located. So if you take your map, and just this is just a side note, I put on there the invasion of Gog of Magog, which we're all watching for, right? And if you look at this map, it'll tell you, okay, in concert with where these people settled, where the attack on Israel in the future is going to come from. So as you can see, Tubal, the other name is Tobolsk, and Rosh means head, but it's the Russian area. Uh, Russia is derivative of Rosh. Meshach clearly is preserved in the name Muscovy, the former name of Russia and the capital of Moscow. So this is the general area. You can see Gomer coming from Germany or Ashkenaz. Togomar is Turkey. Then Persia is not mentioned, but Persia, the ancient name for Iran, is there. And then you'll see Put being mentioned in this table of nations, which is Libya. And then Ethiopia area, which will be mentioned by the name of Cush, which includes Ethiopia and Sudan. So when you understand the invasion of Gog of Magog, which I'm not going to go into, and it names the players, Ezekiel is hoping you know the table of nations. And if you know the table of nations, you'll know where the invasion comes. It's not a mystery. People make it a mystery, but it's real simple. This is who will attack Israel in the near future. Do we already see the players playing? Oh, yeah, they're already lining up. And they're wanting to wipe out the nation of Israel. So these will be the players involved. And again, that's a simple understanding. So when you study Magog of Gog, you have to refer back to Genesis chapter 10 in the table of nations. Just an example of that. Okay, let's go to verse 4. The sons of Javan, this is the Grecian area, were Elisa, the Elysians were mentioned in Homer's Iliad, by the way. So this is a well-known area, okay? The son of him was called Hela, and that's where we get the term Hellenistic. This is all Greek, okay? Tarshish, Spain and North Africa, that's where, remember, Jonah was going to Tarshish. By the way, as far as the Gog of Magog War, the sons of Tarshish, the young lions of Tarshish, sit it out. So to interpret the young lions of Tarshish, then it goes back to really Spain and North Africa, but most of Western Europe. Well, the lions of Tarshish means the offspring of Tarshish. So who comes from Western Europe? Strictly speaking, any country that was founded by Europe. Spain is part of that, is part of Tarshish. Look what Spain got involved in. The colonies in the United States, Canada. All of those countries were established by Tarshish. So we are considered in biblical understanding the young lines of Tarshish. We are part of that. Whether it's Spanish or French or English, we are those young. And that stretches from South America, Central America, and North America. We're all part of the lines of Tarshish, including then Australia on the other side of the planet. Okay, what's the point? What is predicted by Ezekiel? The young lions of Tarshish will sit this one out and let Israel get attacked. They won't get involved. And I think we're starting to see the buildup in the mindset of that already. 
So I just note that, you know, look, the table of nations are telling you this is what's going to happen. We're from that table of nations, from Tarshish. That's where our origins come from here in America. And then it names Kittim, which is Cyprus, and Dodanim, which is the Darnells or Rhodes. So a lot of the Greek areas. Let's go to verse 5. This is very interesting. I want you to not miss this one. From these, the coastal peoples of the Gentiles were separated. Start paying attention to this one. Into their lands, number one. Everyone according to their language, number two. According to their families, number three. And into the nations, number four. Did you catch that? That will be repeated three times in this chapter. I wonder why. No, this is saying, it's referring to after the Tower of Babel. That this is how God divided up the people. Families, lands, language, nations. That's what God wants. And he wants this division to happen to prevent something that did happen before and he's going to allow in the future, but it's to prevent a one world government. My friends, when you see this, these are the four qualifications of what God wants as far as geopolitics. When you see these leftist politicians clamoring for a one world government, borderless nations, y'all come mentality. It's going against this very scripture. The scripture militates against a global government, which you'll see what Nimrod tried to do. You'll hear on the radio some guys commentate language, borders, culture. You know where they're getting that from? Right here. So this tells you and I, even though it's predicted that a global government will occur, you must resist it in your own personal life. When someone brings it up to you and saying, isn't it wonderful that we could all get together under the banner of one UN nation and, you know, America is so bad, America ought to give up its sovereignty. As the Pope said, did you hear the Pope ever say that? He said it a while back. America ought to give up its sovereignty to the UN. No, thank you, Pope. You stay out of our business here in America. But why do these politicians want this? Because they're evil. They're going against the scriptures. They're anti-God, anti-Bible, and of course they would come up against God's law. That I want languages, cultures, borders, nations. But what, what do they want? To rule the world. And you can't rule the world when there's individual families. That's why the attack on the family is happening. Now they tell you and I, you can have a family any way you want. Two guys, two ladies, and you can have a family. No, you can't. What they are doing is destroying the family unit, which is right here saying, I want the countries to have family units at the grassroots level. And then at another grassroots level, it'll be the language. I want them to speak different languages because that prevents globalism. So that's why the family's being attacked. They want to erase the families. Like that thing you saw on the prophecy update where it's this one teacher said, I don't think that parents have a right to their children. What are you, crazy? But that's really their mindset. They think the community ought to be responsible in raising your kids. Thank you. That goes against Genesis. You're not going to take my kids and raise them. They're not going to be raised by the state. But that's what they want. Why? To brainwash them. And so, so what happened in that incident, I don't know if you saw the story, this teacher at this school, this flaming left teacher, ends up in her cosmetology class, which I didn't even know they had cosmetology. Why would they have a class on cosmetology? 
I thought we'd do reading, writing, and arithmetic. Why are we having a cosmetology class? It's like having a basket weaving class to teach the kids how to put on makeup. That's what this teacher teaches. I can't even believe we devote money to that. But anyway, she brings in a transgender, transvestite, whatever you want to call it, into her class to teach them how to do makeup. This is near Houston. Like I told my class on Wednesday night, you don't think you can find another person to teach a girl to put on makeup in Houston? That's all they do, right? That's what Houston's known for, big hair and makeup, right? You ever been to Houston? That's what the, the whole deal is. And you, she can't go across the street in downtown Houston and find someone to teach the girls how to put makeup? No, I got to bring a transvestite who's wearing jeans, and then the top of him looked like a girl. He looked like a hydra, and he's teaching the class how to do makeup. And then the parents get mad, and they say, oh, you guys need to calm down. And the teacher's fired back, and that one teacher says, you guys don't have a right to raise your kids in this old, archaic way. We need to raise your kids. No thank you. No thank you. But see, that's part of destroying the family unit, saying your kids don't belong to you. They belong to the state, and we'll teach them how to be good global citizens. No way, man. You're right. But anyway... Don't ever forget this. This is what we're fighting, guys. It's right here from Genesis chapter 10. Wow. It's an ancient foundation. And now that foundation is being attacked. Let's move on. Verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush. This is part of Ethiopia and maybe Sudan area. Mizraim is Egypt. Put Libya and then Canaan where they settled in the promised land, right? The Canaanites. Verse 7, the sons of Cush were Seba, that's in Sudan, Havilah, that's the other part of Saudi Arabia, Sabta, that's a part of Arabia, and Ramah, Arabia, and Sabateka, Arabia, and the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Whoa, I've heard that name before. Sheba and Dedan are Saudi Arabia too. Remember who else sits out with the young lions of Tarshish? Saudi Arabia, Sheba and Dedan. So there's an alliance with the young lines of Tarshish with Saudi Arabia. And they choose to sit out the war when Gog of Magog attacks Israel. So again, it pinpoints Saudi Arabia. So when you see today alliances between the United States or the young lines of Tarshish making deals with Saudi Arabia, that's perfectly in line with what's prophesied. And because of that, we're seeing that formation continue. Anyway, Here's where it gets interesting, folks. Verse 8. And Cush begot Nimrod. And that's where we're going to focus. Check this out. When this kid was born, his parents say, let's call him rebel with a cause. And you're thinking, this is what you name your kid? Yeah, they name him this way. And this goes deeper than what you think. Remember, Cush begot Nimrod. The ancestor of this old boy is Ham who got cursed by Noah when Ham raped his mother in her tent and tried to take over Noah's position. As you recall, we talked about that. Noah then curses Canaan, the grandson, who was born of Ham and his mom, of the incestuous maternal relationship that they had, and curses this whole line. Interesting enough, like I told you, when they got cursed, this resentment towards God and his ways kept building and building and getting passed on and passed on and passed on to where it comes to Nimrod 
and they call him rebel for a reason. That he's a rebel and our whole line, our whole family is a rebel towards God. That's why they named him that. This whole line resents God. This is where the Canaanites will come from, right? And so it's this idea, rebel means taking up arms against a ruler and his authority and disobeying the authority. Guess who that authority is? It's God. So the guy's name is this, okay? So that whole family had put themselves in an adversarial position against God, and they're teaching their young people every time they have babies and kids to hate God. They're God-haters. And I want you to think about this. We have archaeological finds of what they think is Nimrod. I want you to notice something, and I'll get to it. Look at the size of Nimrod and the size of the other people. Isn't it interesting? Interesting, huh? I'll come back to that. So go back to the scriptures, and it says, He began to be a mighty one on the earth. Now, in your English, it's just English, and you're like, okay, he's a mighty one. What's the big deal? No, 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 no. Our English Bibles don't do a justice to the Hebrew. It's gibberim. It's gibberim. He is a gibberim. Uh-oh. I've seen that name before. And like I told you, the way to define words in the Bible is you go back to the original word in which it was used. This takes me back to Genesis chapter 6. When the Banacha Elohim came upon the daughters of men and produced Nephilim, these were the mighty men of renown, or Hebrew is Gibberim. The Nephilim are called Gibberims. Goliath is called a Gibberim when David fights them. Now, again, you have to always check the context, but if we're in the context of Genesis, then that's referring back to the original name, which is located in Genesis 6, the Gibberim. Interesting enough, it's telling you something. Look at these pictures. Look at the size of him. By the way, that's Gilgamesh, which in Mesopotamian literature, Gilgamesh was another name for Nimrod. That was their Nimrod, if that makes sense. His name floats around in different cultures in different ways, but it's the same dude. It's Nimrod. Look at the size of him. What did the Banaha Elohim produce? Nephilim. But what are most of the Nephilim? Giants. They're giants. Look at the size of the animal compared to him. Notice that this guy has wings on his back. It's not that I'm saying he has wings. It's sending a message of his origins, Banacha Elohim, are what? Sons of God, the fallen sons of God, which are what? Angels, fallen angels. Or in the Bible, they're called Elohims. They never use the word angels unless they're doing a message. They're acting as a messenger. The angels are called Elohims, which means they're a spirit creature. And that's why God is called El Elyon, the most high God, and the most high Elohim, because he's above all the other Elohims. Elohim just means spirit being. Angels are spirit beings. So in the Old Testament, the way the Hebrews talked about them, they called them Elohims, knowing that they're not the most, the most high Elohims. They're under him. They're angels. We call them angels, but that's, that's really their task is, is messaging. But they're Elohims. Okay, these fallen Elohims as it says in Genesis 6, did it again. 
Now, the other ones are put up in Tarsus, but now a new set comes and does this, and uh, it will continue on in the land of Canaan to prevent the, the Israelites from coming back in the land. And what do the Israelites say when they come in the land? There are giants in the land. No joke, they're not exaggerating. There are Gibberims. There are Nephilim in there. The Anakim and whatnot, they're all mentioned that in Joshua. So, I want you to pay attention to this. In ancient, ancient Mesopotamian literature, this Nimrod figure, or Gilgamesh, they said, in other literature, he was one-third human and two-thirds God. So, they're kind of right. You can see a corruption. But what we would say is that he's half Benahe Elohim and he's half human. Okay? And because of that, we are now dealing with somebody that's not fully human. I want you to think about that. He's not fully human. He's a prototype. He's the first prototype of the Antichrist. Remember in Genesis 3, 15, and I mentioned to you when we studied that passage, the Antichrist will be the seed of Satan, just like Messiah is the seed of the woman, singular, Singular seed of Satan? Hmm. I want you to ponder that. So if he is a Nephilim, I'm not going to be dogmatic on it. It would make perfect sense. Because a lot of the, the ancient stories about this individual, whether it's Gilgamesh or in Egypt, it's Osiris. They're all connected to him being half human, a half God type of creature. Okay? You can read this about Osiris in the Book of the Dead. And talk, and this is interesting. In the Book of the Dead, the Egyptian religion, Book of the Dead, it calls Osiris King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It is the only time in other religions that their deity is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Isn't that interesting? Because you and I know that's a term given to the Messiah in Revelation 19. Adonai ha Adonim, Melech ha Melechim, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And yet this person steals that title. Isn't that interesting? There's all kinds of stuff involved in this. So uh, apparently he might be connected to the Nephilim. Now think about this. It says he's, he starts off hunting. Look at verse 9. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Let's parse that out a little bit before we move on. He's a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, interesting enough, most people will read that and say, yeah, he's just hunting animals. Eh, maybe, but it goes further than that. And the Jews interpret it way deeper than that. He might have started off as a hunter, as you can see him holding a lion. And there's pictures of him not only attacking lions, but there's like attacking these reptilian types of creatures. Look at this. This is what I wanted you to know. Here's a picture of a Nimrod figure obviously connected to the wings and stuff like that, connecting to the Banaha Elohim. But look at the creature he's attacking. What does that look like? It looks like a creature that you and I are, have never seen before. It looks weird. It looks dinosaurish, but yet it has wings. Is that a dragon? I don't know. But when you study the archaeology, they'll have these creatures that look really weird and that this individual is killing them whether it's a lion or whatever. Funny thing about this, this is probably where he got his reputation, okay? If you study what happened after Noah got off the ark, he had dinosaurs on the ark, and they came out. 
He would have juveniles, obviously, when he was, they were on the ark, but they all came out. Lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. And they all came out. And they populated and they spread. And what ended up happening, apparently, is the animals reproduced quite amazingly. And there ended up being more animals that threatened humans at this time than anything. And so one of the ways to get a reputation in that ancient time was to kill these creatures as trophies, whether it was a lion or a dragon or whatever. And you hear the stories of the knights killing dragons as an act of bravery and stuff like that. You know the stories like that. Well, that's what they were doing in the ancient world. This would be a mark of bravery, fame, fortune, because you would get paid for things like this. And when you study this, this is what the rabbi said, that he gained his notoriety from killing exotic animals. Not only was his fame there, but the money came rolling in for doing things like this, okay? So he started out as a hunter of animals, but he doesn't finish there. Once he gets established money-wise, fame, fortune, power, along with that money, he starts hunting something else, Think in your mind, if you're not hunting animals, what are you now going to hunt? Yeah, you got it. You're going to hunt humans. You're going to go to the next level. Now, hunting humans in a different way, hunting them down to come to your side and come to your positions, or hunting you down if you disagree with him. There's a twofold aspect in the hunting there. Interesting enough, when the Jews translated the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic, it's called the Targum. You can see the Targum all you want online or whatever. But the Targum is the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew. And then, obviously, the Greek translation of the Hebrew is the Septuagint. But in the Targum, this phrase pops up again, I think, in First Chronicles chapter 1, verse 10. You see this phrase, therefore it said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. That is a slogan. That's a, a Hebrew um, you know, uh, thing you would put on, on people, that they became like Nimrod, a money hunter. Well, it meant something in the Hebrew society. Well, the Aramaic Targum translates it a lot better. It says, who provoked men in wickedness and then rebelled against Yahweh in referring to a mighty hunter before the Lord. So before the Lord is in opposition to Yahweh and this mighty hunter then provoked wickedness in human beings against Yahweh. That's the hunting he did. So that's his mantra. We're going to come against Yahweh, and you need to join me. But if you don't join me, I'm going to kill you, is the idea. That sounds familiar like the George Soros's of the world, right? Eerily, eerily similar. Join us or die, right? Okay, so what he starts to do is take that fame and fortune and convince people to rebel against God. Now, I don't know how he sold it. So I'm taking a guess here, but this is perhaps how Nimrod sold it to people. That's why he built towers. Look, guys, the most high God, Yahweh, killed our ancestors. He wiped them out with a flood, and you all know about the flood, and he wiped out our ancestors. What's to prevent him from doing that again? We need to unify and have security against this God because this is a mean, evil, vindictive God and he's going to try to wipe us out. So the best way to fight him is we all got to get together. We all got to come together as one to fight this evil God and we're going to build towers so high that it will rise above the waters that he sends again. But what did God promise about the waters? He wouldn't do it again, right? 
But see, the messaging could have come out like that. Look, guys, your security's at stake here. Again, if you all live outside on your own, not being in the city walls, it's dangerous to live out there because I've been fighting dragons and lions and those wild animals will kill you. Because remember, he turned them against us. They used to be docile. They used to be our pets. And now God has turned them against us and we're having to worry about these animals killing us. So you're better off coming with me behind the walls of a city and I'll provide you peace and security. Which is the same mantra that is said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Peace and security. The world's getting too hostile. We can't rely on this guy because he's not going to save us. We got to rely on human ingenuity. It's the ultimate form of humanism. And people bought it. And those who didn't, he killed them as a hunter in opposition to the Lord. Now, that being the case, you can see now the groundwork for the Antichrist, right? How are people going to buy into a system that tracks you? How are people going to buy into a one-world currency? How are people going to buy into a one-world government or a one-world religion? Simple. It's really simple. Make people afraid. Have you noticed they're always making people afraid of things, even the foods you eat? They make you afraid. You go on the internet. If you look up a, a thing going on and you, you, know, you say, hey, I got this cough going on, you look on the internet, it says you're dying. Every time, right? You're dying. Go see a doctor immediately. <laughs> people try to diagnose themselves, but why? It's full of fear. They don't know what's going on, and so they get fearful of things. And people will get on crazy fad diets because someone says it's going to kill you. And, uh, and boy, howdy, they'll, they'll avoid it. Remember when they used to say fats will kill you? Now they're saying fats are okay. It's a fear culture. There's books written on this, guys, of establishing a fear culture. And if they can get people afraid, afraid for their own security, then they will definitely give up, guess what? Their liberty for security. So that you hear these mantras in these college campuses and these poor snowflakes are being offended by someone else's opinion that's different than theirs. <laughs> I'm having a breakdown. It's so stressful to hear someone else's opinion. I can't deal with it. You know what? I'm going to tell the university professor and the university itself to deem what he's saying, that alternative opinion, as hate speech. So he can't exercise his free speech. Right? And that's what's happening. Because I need security. I need a puppy and a blanket to protect me from all these crazy opinions out there. What are they doing? They're so afraid. They're willingly, in America, giving up free speech rights for security. They'll tell you this. Look, guys, we got to, this is going to come. I'm telling you right now, it's going to come. Guys, you know, we got to stop this drug cartel stuff, this under the table stuff. We can't, you know, there's just all this money out there we can't account for. And you would want, you know, um, to end drug cartels. And you would want to end all this underhanded money laundering and whatnot, wouldn't you? You're like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. You don't want someone stealing your identity. You're tired of your identity being stolen, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What can you do? What can you do? Help? How do you help me prevent my identity? Well, they're not going to tell you to go to LifeLock, okay? They're going to tell you, look, we'll take care of it. And what we're going to do is put a tracking device on you. And hey, look, at this point, you're going to have pure security because no one can ever take anything from you because it's, it's all on your hand and on your forehead. And you'll have the ultimate security. And at the same time, you give that away. You give all your rights up. It's gone. 
You don't think your phone's tracking wherever you go and listening to whatever you say? It is. It can see you. Your phone is watching you through the reverse camera. That's pretty scary already. But we're gonna, it's going to move to where everyone is controlled. And so it's the same principle. Give up liberty and I'll give you security. That's how bad it's getting. And so what, what do you do to get people there? Create a culture of fear. I was talking in my Sunday school class about the difference between pioneers and settlers. And one of the profound differences is you think about the pioneers that started America, hardcore, tough people, fiercely independent, relied on pulling up their own bootstraps and making it happen, right? That's where America was at. And now we've moved into a generation that wants puppies and Play-Doh to comfort them. What would our American settlers think about that kind of person? Oh, my goodness, how far we have fallen. But it's exactly the game plan that they want. Create a wimp culture who can't fight wars anymore. Create that wimp culture, and I will rescue them with security. The whole nation is set up. The world is set up for that. Think about the Europeans. They're as useless as a noodle. Well, what, what can they do? They'd rather drink their lattes and eat French pastries than get into a war. You got people taking over their countries, Muslims taking over their countries. And then what are they doing? Sipping their lattes? Not fighting back? Trying to establish peace with Sharia law? Are you crazy? But they think they can. And they're getting taken over by Sharia law. But anyway, I do digress. Let's go back to this. Interesting enough that Nimrod, this nighty hunter, goes before the Lord. And, and this Nimrod, when it says before the Lord, it's not just opposition to the Lord. It's he's provoking God by his words, if that makes sense. He's provoking God by his words, which is interesting. It's predicted that the little horn will speak blasphemous words against the Most High, El Elyon. And this beast will speak blasphemous words against God himself. It's the same thing. They won't shut their mouths up in attacking God and his principles. And that's what we're seeing today. But one man will come then, like Nimrod, and do the same thing. Wow. Scary, isn't it? But this is, this is happening. Now, here's what Nimrod did. It's kind of twofold. He took the useful idiots in his culture, the people that don't think, they can't critically think. And useful idiots is, is a term for people that don't know what's going on. They're just being led astray. He took the useful idiots, garnered support from them. And we're starting to see this today. Our colleges and universities, our public schools, do not teach kids how to think. They teach them what to think. And that is a critical error. And it's intentional. Don't think for a moment it's not intentional because in order to follow a system devised by Nimrod or the Antichrist, you have to have useful idiots. You have to have people who don't think. They don't know how to interpret the culture. They don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. They can't discern anything what's going on and the wool's pulled right over their eyes and they're blinded because they're supposed to think a certain way. And that's what we're starting to see even in our country. Wow. What was his tactic? Watch this, verse 10. And the beginning of his kingdom, oh, that's interesting, this is the first kingdom. 
This is the first kingdom that starts. And it's a one world kingdom. See, he was not content of just being a king over one region. Watch what this guy did. At the beginning of his kingdom, which look what it includes. Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. And then after the Tower of Babel happened in verse 11, it, it fast forwards and says, from that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh. Nimrod is called the builder of Nineveh. Remember Jonah went there? Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the principal city. Now, what did he do? His tactic was not just to build one kingdom, but to build a one world kingdom under his rule by starting city-states and urban areas instead of agricultural areas. Why? Why do you want to have people in a city versus out in the rural areas in the farmlands? Because it's real simple, and you probably already know why. If you pile a bunch of people up in a city, you can control them. When, when America was at its best, when it was spread out in farmland, it was the most moral when America was spread out in its farmland areas. The minute America started getting these great cities like L.A. and Atlanta and New York and Boston, corruption came into those places. Look at San Francisco now. Look at L.A. Look at Dallas and all these places. It's high crimes. Look at Detroit. Look at Chicago. I wouldn't step foot in those places, man. You're liable to be shot. But there's something about cities versus tent living. And so the first thing he does is put everybody clumped up in the cities, and then he can rule and reign them. Very interesting tactic. Very interesting. So he doesn't want national borders. He doesn't want individual city-states. He doesn't want individual governments. He wants all the governments to come under him for peace and security. You understand now? Now fast forward to today. That is why they don't want America having its national sovereignty anymore. They actually call you a patriot, a criminal, for not wanting to, to hook up with the UN. You're the problem, they're saying. And, and they try to paint you as a Nazi nationalist, right? They put you in that level. We were just a nationalist. No, I'm a patriot. I'm following Genesis 10. I love my country, the language, the culture, the people. I don't want to be attached to England or France. I don't want to be attached to the UN or Belgium. That's biblical. I want borders, language, culture. It's all biblical. So when they say, you're just being mean to people who want to come here. No, I'm just saying come legally. That's all I'm saying. Quit breaking our laws. And at the end of the day, they'll say, well, the ends justify the means. You know, they just want a better life. I want a better life. Does that give me the right to rob banks? I just want a better life for my kids, so I'm going to start robbing banks. How stupid is that? But yet that's the mentality. But the real issue is not this, we feel sorry from the leftists. They want to pretend that they're moral. You know what they want. They want votes. And at the end of the day, they want globalism. Dude, if Trump wasn't in there, Hillary would have put us straight on a path to globalism. And that's what's coming next. You have to understand, we're in a window right now of safety, per se, from attaching ourselves to the global government. That's what they want. They all want it, and they all say it. It's not even a secret anymore. So if anyone comes to you and says, well, I think that's conspiracy theory. I've never heard that. Well, hey, it's not my problem that you're low information. It's just not. You don't even know what's happening? Read the paper. 
Oh, don't read the commie rag of the Bakersfield, California. That'll throw you off. Get some real news and start reading. They all say it, man. There's no conspiracy. Look at this quote from the UN. We do not want another committee. We have too many already. What we want is a man's sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of all people and to lift us out of the economic morass in which we are sinking. Send us such a man, and be he God or the devil, we will receive him. And you know what, you win? You will get exactly that. He will send the evilest person beyond Nimrod, beyond Pharaoh, beyond Haman, beyond Antiochus Epiphanes. And he will give you the Antichrist, the very one you're wanting. You will get what you want. And that man will destroy you. You don't want God. You're setting yourself up against God right now. You think you're going to have a world of peace and security. Wait till he gives you the serpent's son. You will not know what you asked for. And it'll be too late by then. But guys, the past interprets the present. What you see with Nimrod is coming again. But here's the pattern in Jewish thought. It's not just going to repeat. It's going to be at the nth level. If you thought Nimrod was bad, if you thought Haman was bad, if you thought Pharaoh was bad, if you thought Antiochus was bad, you have never seen this one that's coming. And that's how the pattern unfolds. What's an application? A couple things. First of all, on a global scale, on a, a larger scale than beyond our homes, you must resist the push for global government. You must you have to stand your ground. Now, here's the deal. You and I both know it's predicted, and eventually it happens. We could still be here to watch the formation of the global government. Check out Agenda 2030 from the UN and read the 17 things they want by 2030. You realize we're coming up to 2020. That's only a 10-year plan of what they want. They want global government by 2030. They want economic redistribution of wealth of all nations. And they are going to, if they get their chance, drain us of our economy. They will destroy our economy to redistribute to third world countries. They say, you, it's not fair that you Americans live the way you do. Well, don't blame us. It's the system called the free market. It's based on biblical values. Get a clue. That's where it's from. And, that, and unfortunately, every other country wants to run on socialistic, communistic economics. That's why they're in the dumps economically. But what do they want to push here? Same thing. Same thing. So resist it. And know you have biblical backing for it. Second thing. Now, now we get personal. These patterns not just happen in the world, but they happen in our lives, like I said before. One of the keys to understanding your spiritual walk with the Lord is the pattern that keeps developing in your life that you keep seeing. Now, one of the things we do is deny it or we end up saying, nah, it's not happening, it's not happening, it's not happening. And that's a mistake. God is bringing the pattern up to you again and again in your life to say, you need to deal with this. Now, I don't know about you. One of the patterns that keep coming in my life, it's, it's two things right now. Bad drivers and, and paper straws. That's the pattern I'm dealing with right now. I cannot stand when someone's in the fast lane 
driving under the speed limit when they're supposed to be in the third lane. I'm like, didn't you go to the DMV and they tell you the third lane closest to the road is the slow lane and the medium lane and the fast lane? But apparently someone doesn't understand. And you get right on them, flash your lights. I'm all right. They won't move. They won't move. That pattern keeps coming up in my life. My God, and, and God's trying to get me to control my road rage, um, apparently. That keeps coming up, and I have to deal with it, guys. I, I got to repent. The other thing that I'm having a real difficult time with, and this is a pattern that keeps coming to me every time I go out to eat, paper straws. And I'm thinking, what idiot decided this would be good? Okay? Who thought about that? Oh, we're killing the whales. Save the whales. Hey, I want to say, buddy, we're not the ones polluting the oceans. It's China and India who throw all their trash and plastic into the ocean. And that's what's getting caught in the whale snout. That's what's getting caught. It's not us. It's China and India. So I want to say, hey, Gavin, before you issue a straw Mageddon on California and make it so, have you ever tried one of those straws? After two sips, it was like, it was falling apart in my drink. All the paper. And I was like, I can't do this. How stupid is that, right? And so now, you know, you go to places in Santa Barbara, it's illegal. You can't use straws at all. And they don't give you lids and stuff like that. And you're like, oh, my goodness, this is, this is insane. And, and God's working on me on that. Every time I see a paper straw come my way, it sends chills up my spine. And I get infuriated, just infuriated. So I'm working on it. So I, now I, I, I share with you my, my fights, but God keeps bringing this pattern up. Now, but seriously, man, what God will do is keep putting something in front of you, a pattern, a person, or a, a type of person that you have dealt with all your life. And you're like, why do I keep dealing with this person or this kind of person? And instead of saying, God, just take them away from me because I don't want anything to do with them, that's the wrong move. That's the wrong prayer. The, the right prayer is, obviously, God, you keep bringing the same pattern before me. So there's something I need to learn how to deal with. And at that point, you got it. And then you have to learn, what am I not understanding about handling this knucklehead? Because I'm going to see him for Thanksgiving, right? Thanksgiving and holidays are the worst for people. They have to sit across the table from a knucklehead a lot of times, okay? Not all the time, but... We all have knuckleheads in our family. And you're going to have to look at the knucklehead right in the eye and try to figure him out. And, and don't, don't disrespect him, but you have to say, what is God showing me with the knucklehead and how am I supposed to react to him? I know that's what you're going to have to do. You watch. Thursday will happen and you will have the knucklehead in your face. And my admonition is don't dismiss the knucklehead. Figure out what God is saying to you about the knucklehead and fix it. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.